Hey, everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Alice. Hey, now. Greg, what are you doing here? Hey, what do you mean? What I, Allison, where do you, you come from, Greg? I came from the world of childish, and I just want to make sure that your listeners know that you're just as wonderful on the on the other podcast you do. What if they don't have kids? Don't need them. You don't need them. <laughs> A lot of our listeners actually tell us they don't have kids. We talk about sex. We talk about all sorts and, of dirty stuff, yeah. but also parenting stuff. Yeah. So check out Childish new episodes every Wednesday wherever you listen to podcasts. Everyone, hi, hello, welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I'm sitting here in the pod cabin, and my producer Tony Thaxton is not here because he's on tour with his rock band. So I am producing myself, sending him the files. Now, usually at the top of the show, I catch up with Tony, and then I'll I do also it. I'll catch up. Oh, will you? Yeah, thank you. Okay. Well, do you know now? You don't what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Joel Stein, who I've not yet officially introduced. I think you just did. No, that wasn't official. I have notes for my official. Because oh, really? they don't, you could Is, Are be- there like a clarion call? Like what happens? Are there flags that come out? There's, yeah. It's like a pep rally. It is. Okay. We play yeah. um, Back in Black. Oh, sweet. Yeah. There's a JV pep and song. I don't know if your high school had both. Uh, no. No, we, I don't know if we did. I wasn't that kind of kid. Yeah, no, you were just editor of the Hawkeye Wow. Did you go to my high school? No, I went to your Wikipedia page. Okay, similar. It's almost the same. Yes, it really is. Uh, Did it smell like weed? Yes. The the, the, the Wikipedia page did? Yeah, that sounds right. (laughs) Well, what was the name of your... your High school? The paper that you were the editor of. It was the Hawkeye. You got it. The Hawkeye. Okay. So anyway, yeah. At my high school, we had Pep and Song. And I don't really know the difference. No, we didn't have... No. It was the 80s and it was like very pre-Nirvana, but burnouty New mm. Jersey. Like the idea of going to a pep rally was so uncool. Yeah. Yeah. So to having two of those things seems impossible. Right. Caring, yep. caring was not okay. Um, the, it's, <laughs> but you were in, you were in I Southern was, California. I was, I like, was going to say the women on the pep squad, but I don't, they were girls. It's okay it, to say they were girls. I, my lawyer says I can't say that word anymore. <laughs> uh, it was like San Diego's high school football rules. Like I picture your high school being still very like, Blonde and football it and cheerleader. Yeah. It, that's one of the things I love doing when I go through old photos is confirming my feeling about my childhood, which is I really did go to school with the Aryan youth because yes. I'll take a picture and it's just all extremely blonde, blue eyed kids and then me. And they're kind of like excited about being kids or drinking or. They were excited about, every, about everything. Yeah. Th- there's, this is what life was going to be for them. It yes. was going to be you go to high school, you go to USC, you become a realtor, mm-hmm. and oh, wow. then you move back to Orange... You you uh, settle back in and Orange County there's still. some fake breasts along the way. Yes, that. exactly. Yeah. But here's the weird thing, because as you can tell, there's a lot of condescension. And by the way... No, not me. I'm fine with fake breasts. There's no condescension. No. Oh, from you. Yeah. Sorry. Cond- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> from me. And by the way, I, I, yes. you're turning the tables. This I know, is... I want to tam- interview you. Okay. But, but we were, this is the catch-up part. Yeah, we're catching up. Yeah. Uh, there's some condescension from me 
about the people that I went to school with, which is not entirely fair because I will go on Instagram or what have you, and I'll look and I'll be like, oh, that person who fit the category that I was just talking about, they went to Stanford. Right. Um, and they're like, they're. Did you pick that school because. No, I picked. I did not pick that school because you went to Stanford. I picked that, was, that, that school. It was very complimentary. It was weird. You like picked. I picked that school because school I'm. Spe- I, to to. I specifically okay. recently found out that one of those people who was the like realtor. the epitome of right. the sp- epitome of Orange County mm-hmm. spirit did go to Stanford, and I was like, "How did that happen?" And did they are they a realtor now? I don't know what they are now. Okay. Um, you didn't get that far on their Instagram page. No. no. Well, now I'm now confl- maybe two of them went to Stanford. Um. But one of them was the like president of the Pan Hellenic Society at Stanford. Did oh, they have Greek, the Greek system at Stanford? Definitely, because that felt very. I didn't know like, we had a whole Pan Hellenic society, but I but feel probably. like she was. That okay. felt that felt like that checked out. Okay, yeah, Were no, you we had those frat? people. I was not. No. Um, is this how catching up goes? We find out if we were in frats. Yeah, you yeah. you were in a sorority. No. no, no, okay, no. You don't even know where I went to college, do you? And I know that from reading your new book, which I hope everyone will go out and get. In defense of elitism, why I'm better than you, and you are better than someone who didn't buy this book. And we're going to get into all of that. I know that is a good topic. For yes, this book. yeah. And I know that where people went to college is very important to you. I, I'd like it not to be because I'm 48. It's a ridiculous mm. thing to have any, you know, any pride or any interest in what. Who I was when I was 17 that caused me to get into a college. Right. I totally get it, though. So I'm trying not to care. But I'm desperate to find out where you went to college. I will tell you, and I'll also say that when I was in college, I felt like so many specifics of college were going to be important and have such a bearing on the life that I led, including what what I... you majored in or something? No, I knew better. Yeah. I mean, I I majored in English as well, so I didn't do anything with it, but... I don't think since graduating, I don't think where I went to school has mattered one whit ever. I don't think anyone has ever cared. I went to Pomona College. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lovely school. I mean, Maybe sorry. it is why. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe no. it is why. No, it's a great school. I know, but people school. have, but I, it doesn't it's, really, maybe you know, it's starting to, but it doesn't really have the name recognition. Well, you know what? It's say Stanford. Because it's small. And mm-hmm. so there are those small schools uh, that are harder to get into than Stanford, you right. know, like Williams or something, which, which you have to really be into like academia to know about. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, these other large kind of schools give a lot more opportunity to. Do you feel like having gone to Stanford has helped you? I mean, you email in your book at one moment, at one point you email Cory Booker, a friend from school. Yeah, for sure. In that way. Yeah. A lot of people I know have been really successful from college and, and it gave me some weird confidence just getting in there that I Mm -hmm. think helped me a lot. Um, Yeah, no, I think it, it was a great help. I mean, I think part of the, the system that people are objecting to, the meritocracy basically is is really built a lot on where you went to college and those connections over those four those four years, which is weird. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the cities that you live in. Right. Um, I feel like we've done enough talk at the top of the show. Let's bring in the guest. Okay, I didn't feel like we caught up much. <laughs> am, am I your best friend yet? Or when does that happen? Like, well, you came on the show in 2012, so we've been best friends for like seven yeah, years. Yeah, but but the kind of best friends where when as soon as you see each other again, you pick up right where you left off, but you don't stay in great touch. Uh, but I'm sorry, we are we've been best friends for seven years. Yeah. So I sh- 
you should have been treating me as your best friend this whole time. But I, do I have to contact the person who I think is my best friend and tell them that we're no longer best friends because you're my best friend? Well, that's something that you have to decide for yourself. I think so. You and are you going to do, do like, the same? I already, before every show, I email the last guest. Oh, so you switch. <laughs> yeah. So, so the best. I give it away. It only lasts for like an hour, our friendship, right? Our Depends. best friendship. It's not BFF. It's not forever. It's just Austin for, Rosen's your new best friend forever. No, it clearly doesn't say that. It's just no, best friend yeah, for just, now. It actually says your new best friend. That's all. Yeah. So okay. But I'm. But here, Alice Rosen's your new best friend forever. I should do something with that. No, 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 no. That's too much. This is great. Just your new best new best friend implies how temporary this is. Okay. Do you remember when I think it was Rolling Stone sold a lifetime subscription to Rolling Stone? That's always like a mistake. I always jump on those things. I had like a oh, TiVo lifetime membership. They seem so exciting, but then like you realize like they don't mean lifetime. They just mean until we change our mind. Right. Right. Did you get a Rolling Stone subscription? I didn't. But when I saw that, and I'm not 100 percent sure it was Rolling Stone. But Time it was magazine had movie. them. Really. But it was left over from like the 40s or 50s, and they were dying. But we still, there were still a couple people left on the Lifetime subscription. When I see a magazine doing that... You it, jump on it. No, that's not what I was oh. going to say. This is what happens when you don't see your best friend for seven years. <laughs> you don't really know them anymore. Right. We've ch- I've changed. Um, no, what I was going to say is when I see a magazine doing that, it strikes me as, and I'm going to use a term the kids use, mm-hmm. thirsty. It is. I'm like, oh, things are not going well for it's you. Desperate. That yeah. for a, a year is nine ninety nine, and a lifetime is twenty one ninety nine. Yeah, they're also kind of counting on you not being able to do the... Uh, Paperwork? The, like, what is... No. So, magazine subscriptions turn over... Like, who cares? Magazines don't even exist anymore. They barely The point do. is, the turnover rate is really high. And if you have, like, 3 million readers, it's not the same 3 million you had 3 right. years ago. It's, like, right. maybe 1 million of them are I the same. See. Not even. So, the so retention, just from an advertising point of view, is so important. If you mm-hmm. can claim that someone's... I see. It's so it's almost like a loss leader. Uh, it gets you the advertising dollars. So yeah. that makes sense. Well, so anyway. And plus, they get their money now, which if, they can invest in right. gold. Is that what they're investing no, in? No, no. That's, but, when, but if I were to do Alice and Rosen is your new best friend forever, that's like the yes. lifetime subscription yeah. version. It's like, it's I'm so, trying to. It sounds to, thirsty. Yes, I get it. Yeah, that's I where agree. I'm headed with that. So anyway, Joel Stein, return guest. Are we done? because. <laughs> it was great. wonderful having you. Everyone Thank go out you. and get the book. Oh my God. Um, I talked about my high school. We got to everything. College. Time flies when you're talking to me, right? It's amazing. Uh, return guest, because you came on in May of 2012, which mm-hmm. was only a few months after I'd started the podcast. Yes. Uh, but now you're back. You are a it's journalist. It's a different world now here. It really is. It really is. It's very professional. You have your own room. There are people working for you. Um, there are three water bottles. I don't That's remember right. that many water bottles for me last I, there time. There certainly weren't that many. Yeah, this is nice. You came in the time in between full-size water bottles, mm-hmm. and then there was a period of time. So this was back when I was uh, working for Adam Carolla. That's right. And he was tired of seeing half dr- yes. drank, drunk, yeah. drinken, yeah. drink, drink. Yep. What is it? Half uh, consumed? Well... That's, that's a workaround. It really was. Drank. Half consumed. Yeah. Uh, the, the bottle was half empty for him. So, so people, he went to tiny little bottles. People moved to that. I, I didn't like that because no, I'm a, I'm a massive small. water drinker. Yeah. But, but a lot of people do pick up a water bottle less out of thirst than out of like having something in their hand right. and have a couple sips. And yes. I could see his frustration. The tiny water bottles. Mm-hmm. Are, is like that what Scott Adams had a whole refrigerator of in your book? 
You said like half pint, and I didn't know what size that was because Pomona. Well, this normal one right here is a pint. So yes, they were the tiny ones, the half ones. I don't like that much. I know. I don't like him much. We're going to have to get to that. Yeah, a lot of people had a strong reaction to Scott Adams in my book. Let's talk about that. But first, let me just say, you've written for the LA Times. You had a column in Time Magazine forever. You also wrote a book about manliness. I did. When you found out you were having a boy. That's what we talked about last time. That's right. What was it called again? Uh, um, Oh, God. Um, Joel Stein's book on manliness. A a stupid quest for masculinity. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Would you consider yourself a stunt journalist? It was called uh, Man Made, colon, a stupid quest for masculinity. I have a horrible memory for my own life. You're just focused on your new I would call myself a stunt journalist, yeah. Okay, because I was talking to some friends last night about having you on the show today, and I was was talking about the book, and I think when I say that it's it's a... a book in defense of elitism. People think it's going to be mm-hmm. the, like almost a, a, parody, a treatise a or a... Oh, no. No, actually the op- opposite oh. direction. Like a, a, a um, serious political yes. screed so or that, something. And I'm, I'm like, no, he, you know, he went to this town where they have the highest concentration of Trump voters and he hung out with very... And I sort of went... I'm like, he's kind of a stunt journalist, but then I didn't know if you embrace that term. I do. And, and it's... It was tough. That's why the, the whole... The whole reason that cover has that subhead, which makes it sound like a parody, is because we wanted to let people know that it was a funny book. Because right. it does seem it is a serious topic, and I, yes. it's a it's a more serious book than I would like to write. Like when you have humorous, like I should be writing about like my family and like you know whatever humorists are supposed to write about. Mm-hmm. But instead, I'm writing about politics because that's the time we live in. I love that though. I, I wish we weren't living in a time oh, no, where no, I had no. to write about politics. Yeah. I don't love the time we're living it's in. It's a bad time when humorists are writing about politics. But I yeah. love that you were able to tackle that. I love that you tackled something more serious. And I um, I agree book. with okay. you. Did you say didn't read? Yeah, you were pointing to the book. You're like <laughs> I don't know how to say. I was this. trying. I was no, no. Oh. I I. I don't know how to say something very... I'm just trying to figure out the right word to describe. Like, I think I'm very much aligned with how you feel, and I agree yeah. with you. Well, Pomona. So so one thing <laughs> to quickly define the term elitism, because yes. that is also confusing, is I'm not talking about rich people. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the intellectual elite. And a lot of members of the intellectual elite, like people that go to Davos or are not rich because they could be academics or work in government or work in non-governmental organizations, which is the elite term for charity. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of them are not wealthy. They're just influential and powerful. And those are the kind of people I'm defending. Right. Um, people with expertise compared to the people who think they know more than the generals. Because you feel like populism is going to dismantle democracy. Yes. It's, it's almost there. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was thinking, do you, cause that came up last night when I was explaining the book as well. Um, it's a pain in the ass to describe, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. I feel like I was able to do it though. Well, I, then I I'll really, bring you around with me. I, I, <laughs> yeah. You are my two best as, friend. Yeah, yeah, I'll do it. Um, I really, really liked the book though. I oh, really loved you. it. Uh, and yeah, I was thinking, you know, there's a lot of different definitions of elitism. Yeah. I, I feel like you're defining in the, w- in the way that people who are anti-elite use the term elite, that's, that's kind of... That's exactly. how you're the way Sarah Palin it. or yeah. Trump right. uses the term elite. And then there's this turn in the book that occurred because a little more... I guess it's more than a year ago now. Trump was in a speech in Minneapolis where after railing against the elite and his campaign and since he's president, he suddenly turned on the term and he said, wait a second, why are they the elite? Like, we're the elite. 
we have more money and nicer houses and bigger boats. Like, they're not the elite. We are. Yeah. And that no really, shit. That really crystallized what's going on for me, that mm-hmm. there's this it's not really nationalism or populism. It's this fight between two elites, the mm-hmm. people who, the, the people who care about money. Like we don't want a yacht. We just want to give a Ted talk, right? <laughs> like right. Th- it's a real difference. And they, yeah. they are about money and power and real Strength. politic. And, and we're more about globalism and compromise. And uh, it's a very, it's a very stark divide of values. And when people think that Trump has fooled everyone or that, um, the, these p- idiots who voted for Trump against their own interests. That's not what's going on. This is a, re- I'm not saying he is the smartest guy or knows about this, but he happened to be the guy who was there at the time for our country mm-hmm. who, who represented these values that a bunch of people who basically don't live in cities hold dear. And it's, it, and we're having, this is, I remember thinking in 2016, not, not that he'd win at all, but that we are having our first when during the general election, the Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, people were like, well, this is the dumbest election. People are just insulting each other. And I was like, no, we're not having this discussion about how much capitalism, communism did dip in our capitalism. Mm-hmm. We're having a real discussion about values and what this country should be. And I think it's happening all over the world right now. It's a right. real scary, important discussion. And I'm glad we're, I mean, I, obviously I wish we weren't having it. And the people who agree with me were just, everyone was like that, mm-hmm. but, but I, but it's important that we're having this discussion. Yes. Um, I think that reading the book made me realize that, and I hate to even admit that I want to do this, but I like, I want to just like gloss over the complaints of all those people and just be like, they're wrong. They're it's, they're uneducated and they're wrong and they don't know what they're doing. And they've been hoodwinked. Right. That's everyone I know thinks that way and they're wrong. Right. It's simplistic. And it's, I mean, I think it's not effective either. And it was someone in your book, maybe you, who was like that's that kind of thinking is what put Trump in power? It wasn't you. I don't know who it was. Maybe. Someone, yeah, probably Tucker Carlson. Okay, so I was surprised at how much I agreed with Tucker Carlson yeah. in parts. Yeah, me too. But this was back. He's he's changed even since then, right or no? I don't think so. Okay, so let's go through what you do in the book, and also okay. because I like to read the acknowledgments. Oh, uh, yeah. My name wasn't in there. I mean, it wouldn't be because we haven't been in touch. But um, but you are my best friend, so it is weird that it wasn't in there. It was a small. You're not, you'll get you'll get it on the next yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Paperback. I can tell that this book has been on quite a journey, and you started it out as a different type of book, right? Yeah. So tell me the story of what it started as and how it got to this. Oh, it's a miserable story. Um, I wrote a that other book about masculinity. It did not sell particularly well. But my editor gave me like the equivalent of a blind script deal and said, like, I'll give you half as much as we gave you last time if you write some essays. Mm. And my agent was like, you should just take that deal. Like, you know, uh, and so I did. How did you feel about that? Good. I felt good. Uh, No, I didn't. I felt very uncertain as to what he was talking about. (laughs) Like, what is this thing going to be? A bunch of funny essays? Like, that didn't feel right. So I started... I put it off because I wasn't sure what it was. And he actually left the company. So I got another editor who's great. Uh, and I wrote a bunch of essays that I didn't feel good about. And I stitched them together into kind of a memoir kind of story. And, and I was very late with this book. I mm-hmm. kept putting it off and rewriting it. And didn't Because like you it. didn't have, you didn't know what you were writing. You know, I didn't like 
what I was writing because it didn't hold together as a story. And then I really came to dislike it because I grew up pretty privileged, like middle class. I've had a very easy life. Mm. And so these stories seemed really flimsy. Mm. I was reading other people's memoirs and other, so many other voices have, have come into memoirs and, and mine just seemed really uninteresting. Mm -hmm. And I read more and more as, as politics really ramped up, you know, diversity issues, me too, like all these kind of interesting things, my middle-class stories really felt weak. And so Mm -hmm. I, I told them I didn't want to, I wanted another chance and I didn't like that book. And I was under the impression they would, that, publishers just said yes to that mm-hmm. but they just said no wow. <laughs> they wanted their money back from the advance mm. and i felt just irresponsible as like a dad and an adult and just like a, a whiny like i'm not even an artist like who was i to like say like i don't think it's good enough like i won't so i really would they have put that one out yeah would they were happy with it i don't know the answer to the second question okay. but they were gonna put it out got it and so happy enough, happy enough or just sick of me i don't know <laughs> And <laughs> were they columns like your time columns? Yeah. 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 They're funny. Mm-hmm. Um, they just seemed not substantial enough. Yeah. Got it. Like worse than that. Like, um, like, hi, I'm just a white guy. Yeah, but not, yeah, I guess so. But like, yeah, they just seem like mildly funny takes on uninteresting events. Mm-hmm. Um, I, cu- I couldn't figure out, and I tried to stitch it together by talking about my social anxiety stuff, which seemed interesting, but wasn't really that interesting. Um, anyway, so I pulled it, and then they said, yeah, give us our money back. And then the right at the same time, the president and the number two person at Grand Central Publishing, uh, which is owned by Hachette, mm-hmm. left. And so my editor was like, if you give me like five ideas, I'll run them by the new president. If he likes one of them, we'll do that instead. But it was like, it was a nice way of saying goodbye. Mm. But I sent her five ideas and, and she was so nice and did pitch them and he went for one of them. So that, that's what this book became. And was that in defense of elitism? Yeah. So there were like five ideas I liked, maybe three to five I liked. And they were based on stuff I'd written before for time. And this was one of them. Mm Mm-hmm. And so then how did you decide, well, had you been uh, wanting, sorry, go ahead. I didn't know how to write a book. This is my second book. I still don't really know. Eventually, a friend of mine said to me, like, stop writing a series of articles and write one long article. Mm -hmm. And that helped click it in my head a little bit. Mm -hmm. But it's been really hard for me to figure out how to write a book. Yeah, as someone who I also worked at Time Out New York magazine background. Um, I know. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yes. Which we have to talk. I don't yeah. know if we talked about it last time. We have to talk about that. Um, I And I have one book out, which is just, uh, it's just my first year of syndicated columns. So I also right. cannot figure out how to tackle the book thing. Yeah. And I have tried in so many different ways. I mean, I still think I'm going to do it someday. And yeah. I, I like that's, I would, I wanted, I want to do it. But um, it it confounds me. Yeah, yeah. I remember writing like a my first movie script. I've only written one movie script with someone else. After writing a bunch of sitcom scripts, and every every time something gets longer, it demands more structure, and that and structure is hard. Like storytelling is hard. When I sit down to write 
I feel like the best things I've written, I didn't know where I was going to end up. And I think that you need to know where you're going to end up with bigger things. Maybe you certainly at some point you have to have a real structure. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, it doesn't have to be when you start out, but at some point you really have to give it a beginning, a middle end. I mean, the classic, like has to have a twist. It has to have, you know, it has to have all right. of those things, whether it's fiction or nonfiction to be a story. Right. Um, well, I want to talk to you about the content of the book, but then I also have questions just about like the process of writing it and stuff. Mm-hmm. This is um, your show. Yeah. yeah. I'm just going to, I'm just going to ask those questions Do first it. and then we're going to get to the content of yeah. it. So, at any point, did you go, okay, well, now I have the go-ahead and I have the money. Fuck. Now I got to contact all these people, book all these trips, like actually do the stunt part of it. No. I mean, that when I first imagined this book, it was a series of stunts. It was like mm-hmm. a lot of stunts. And that's what I'm comfortable doing. So right. booking that stuff, like that's my comfort zone. Okay. So I know how to do that. So like, for example, you shadowed Mayor Eric Garcetti for a day to right. see, because you have no So I can like experience. generate like 30 ideas like right. that. And I have enough connections from being at, basically being at time for 20 mm-hmm. years and other stuff that I can like call people up and, and some of them will say yes. Right. So, so that's your comfort zone. So what's my, so not your comfort zone? a bunch of those zone. stuff. My com- my, not my comfort, my, is really storytelling. That's hard for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why do you think? I don't think journalism is great at teaching you storytelling. I don't think I'm a natural storyteller either. Mm-hmm. Like I, some people really refine their stories and retell them like Mark Twain style. Like I tell someone what happened to me and then I'm, I'm kind of done with it. Like mm-hmm. I get it out and I don't really craft it. Right. So I just have never really developed that skill. And it turns out it's a really important skill if you want to be a writer. Yeah. Yeah. I, also like to make a lot of pithy observations and a yeah. few bigger points and then I'm done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've, been, I've been on TV writers rooms a couple of times mm-hmm. and the, and you can tell the people that really know story. Right. And they're, and they're like, no, that doesn't, you know, what, what is the protagonist want here? Right. Yeah. Like, you need you, stakes. Yeah, all that stuff. Um, and so then and I'm sharing too much about myself. So then I go about me, like, what is it that I want to say? And so for you, this book, there really is something you're trying to say. Uh, that's not hard for me. I mean, it's hard for me to care about things. But, <laughs> but like, no, I know that's a question. And I had mm-hmm. something very clear to say. So that, that, yeah. that wasn't a problem either. How long have you wanted to say? What, what is it that you want to say and how long have you wanted to say this? Oh, at least since Sarah Palin, I've been writing columns about defending elitism. So mm-hmm. that's probably when it occurred to me. I mean, I, I talk about the history of anti-intellectualism throughout the book and that goes back hundreds of years so that's not new but i mean that's very american it seems very american there's this great book i want to pull it from the 60s called anti-intellectualism in america mm-hmm. but it's not just america it's it's everywhere right so um obviously you see it in brexit you see i mean you see it all over the world right now uh but for me sarah palin was the first time i heard someone articulate it so clearly Although, you know, I should have been more attuned to like, you know, people have been taught, like I remember when Howard Dean ran, Mm -hmm. that was, you know, I knew that kind of vernacular of, you know, the Spiro Agnew-y kind of like, um, you know, coastal elite with their Volvos and their lattes and, but, but Sarah Palin really kind of drilled down to like who's an American and who isn't in a more, in a Mm -hmm. nationalism kind of way. So when you went to the town. And she was so proud of not knowing anything, it freaked me out. I didn't see that coming. Yeah. 
I know. It wasn't just that she was angry at other people for being, you know, snobby about their knowledge. She was she really thought knowledge was a problem and that the the gut is pure and that if she was just in charge, she would, you know, naturally know what to do without without information getting in the way of making the right decision, which is a real belief out there that like your gut is pure and, and Donald Trump certainly has it that like he just knows better because he know, he's smart and he knows right from wrong and that other people mm. get their information and it makes them tricky and they try and use it to their advantage, but it, it makes them just more evil. Right. Um, okay. Well then let's talk about Scott Adams. Like I know so many people who are super into what he says. You and- do? I don't know them personally, but they tweet at me. <laughs> oh, they do? Yeah. You have uh, Scott Adams fans tweeting at you. I do not. Yeah. Um, Even though I've written about them. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I still have a ton, but because I trafficked in the Adam Carolla, Rogan world a bit. Um, That's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know I don't know that I would say I... I mean, because I was on Corolla's show for yeah. years and then I've been on Rogan. So Got I don't it. know if that's where I collected the Scott Adams fans. That, those would be good places. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now I feel bad that I just said he's cat. I'm not saying you guys are dumb, but let's just, just forget what I said. Let's just talk about the chapter where you go up to Northern California. You spend time with Scott Adams because it pushed all of my buttons. Okay. So he is the guy who created Dilbert. Yes. Still does Dilbert every day. He, I didn't realize he's actually quite liberal in a lot of ways, yes. but very Pre-Trump pro-Trump. Trump. Yes. And believes that Trump is brilliant and is going to prevent us from engaging in war with North Korea and that um, that we're watching two different movies and the movie that that Joel and I are watching is one that depresses us whereas the movie he's watching is one where Trump is triumphant or so I don't know like a scary horror film about a clown right right uh, when we look at the Trump administration, he is looking at a comedy of a brilliant kind of trickster guy who is uh, conning other countries into giving us yeah. better deals. And he also believes that experts don't know anything or he, something like that. Yeah. He believes the world is so complicated at this point that everyone is bullshitting everybody and no one can possibly have enough information and that facts don't matter and that when you when you suck in information, it goes through so much confirmation bias mm. that what you wind up thinking has nothing to do with facts. It, is he it, a smart guy? Yes. So what is the deal? Because <laughs> because I get what he's saying, and there's kernels of truthiness or truth in in what he's saying like yes everything is complex and right. you can overthink things and you can take in so much information that you no longer listen to your gut and it steers you in the wrong direction at the same time an expert knows more than someone who doesn't know anything mm-hmm. he has a very uh i think a lot of people especially people who are kind of sympathetic to trumpism have a very Tony Soprano view of the world, mm-hmm. that the world is corrupt, that everyone's looking out for themselves, that nobody's playing by the rules. I don't necessarily even disagree with that. But the more you believe that, the more you believe, I need, so- I need someone to be right. in my tribe mm-hmm. who's going to be just as ruthless 
and and uh, also not played by the rules. We all need our own Tony Soprano, right? And the one who's the one who's the best general for your team for your army is the best. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that kills me about what he's saying is that it just disregards truth and reality. He does not believe, and I and think, this is like Nietzschean perspectivism, but he mm-hmm. does not believe one can ever have access to actual truth. Whereas I think the elite or people who had a liberal arts education or I don't know, I don't know how you would classify this, the people that I'm talking about hold the search for truth to be like one of the most important, meaningful yeah, points I, of being alive. I think one clear place where we're seeing that kind of tension is in our, uh, in our intelligence and, and military right now, mm-hmm. because Trump just doesn't believe that they're, they know anything and that they're doing anything other than looking out for themselves. And so he is, is just ignoring, you know, their advice and their expertise and their intelligence. And, uh, it must be very, I think it's very frustrating for them. Yeah. Um, and scary. I mean, like that's where it gets very real. You can kind of mess with our trade situation and cause some damage. But when you mess with our um, America in particular, mm-hmm. you, you know, the military so huge and, and and so scary to everybody that um that's where it gets super scary well and right now as we sit here recording this feels like an especially precarious time with the assassination of Soleimani. yeah maybe i find that very confusing like I, and the great thing about having a great the, the great simplifier as our president is that like the Soleimani thing happens and like i don't know much about this like i don't I, I don't know if this is good or awful or what it will cause, but then he'll tweet like, my plan is to destroy 52 cultural sites. And I'm like, oh, well, I know that. I know you can't do that. Yeah. I know that's a war that's crime. That's a war crime. So he always like, he always simplifies things enough where I know he's wrong. Right. Um, he gets down to my level. He's just a Fox <laughs> viewer, right? right? He's just like, and I don't blame him at all. You like, don't blame Trump. I don't. It's like, People talk about – I feel like it's an idiotic conversation to talk about Trump. It's like saying, oh, I think Trump was wrong. Like, I think he shouldn't have done that. I'm like, it's to me the same as saying, well, I don't think Snooki was a good president today. <laughs> it's like you, you picked him. Right. You picked a person with no experience. Like, don't get mad at him. Mm. Like, we, this is an insane conversation we're having. I, you know, I it don't know. Feel... I, the Rock's policies seem like they took us in the wrong direction. Yeah. Did you say The Rock? Yeah. 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 Um, nothing against any of these people. Like they just shouldn't be president any more than I should be president any more than I should be running like a real estate marketing company. I just have no experience at it. This fantasy that maybe someone who's like just a good business person, but doesn't have any political experience will be the best. What, what do you make of that? What is that? I think it's a resentment against the elite that, uh, and you, and th- this kind of runs parallel to general anti-Semitism, <laughs> which is like these people with their tricky laws looking out for themselves. Just they think they're better than us. They think they're better than us, and they also are just using the system to benefit themselves. So let's tear down the system. Mm-hmm. Something that I thought was interesting in the book, which I hadn't really, th- I didn't know, and then things happen that like verify that, like. Jeffrey Epstein yeah. or the um, Varsity Blues scandal. And I'm like, oh, this is just the worst thing that can possibly happen. So it's like all of your weird Pizzagate theories are coming to life. Right. Yes. 
the right? Jeffrey Epstein Pizzagate oh, crossover. That was weird. Too and big. And yeah. the same with the Varsity Blues a scandal and the belief that like you know the, the meritocracy is um is keeping everyone out like ugh, just bad stuff <laughs> right so, so there is some truth to people's complaints obviously and the and the system needs to be improved but tearing it down seems uh well it is scary because yeah, you can sure, look yeah. at countries where cambodia or what have you where the system's been torn down and it hasn't yeah. gone well um by the way it's like it is a funny book and whenever i talk about it it's not funny <laughs> It's really, it's weird. I have yet to have like a funny conversation about this book. It is a really, I know, I know because I, I imagine because you're being interviewed by people who are like, this spoke to the things I'm worried about. Let's talk about it. Yeah. And the other thing is people always like, I don't know where you were going to go or where your plans were, but they always ask me like, what should we do? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's out of my expertise. Like (laughs) what I wanted to do was simply like figure out what's not simply, I wanted to figure out what's going on and talk Mm -hmm. to like people who voted I went to the county in America which had the highest percentage of Trump voters because I don't understand them. And I feel like my friends don't understand them. So I just wanted to get understand their point of view, which mm-hmm. seemed like a first step. Do you feel like you did? I do. I do. Much, much more than my friends do. And honestly, the, the main effect it has is getting me in conversations with my liberal bubble friends where they get pissed off at me. Mm-hmm. How so? You know, if you don't just sit there and yell about Trump and what a bad person he is and you and you say anything other than these people are idiots and racists and you give credence to their point of view, even if you don't agree with it, just to explain that their point of view is maybe more complicated than just like, I hate black people. Mm -hmm. People get pissed at you because they want the other side to be evil and them and their side to be good. Right. Uh, And I understand that. I feel that, but it doesn't work. And it's not true. Do you, but you were also hoping to maybe change their minds, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm. It was a little bit of a shtick because I, mm-hmm. I know bet. I know I'm not a very convincing person. I also know <laughs> you don't argue with people and convince them of anything, right? But yeah, no. I thought I, I would just by showing up and being reasonable mm-hmm. <laughs> change some minds. Uh, I thought like, I thought I'd go down to this county in Texas and I would teach them something and they would teach me something. What they would teach me, I'd just like stitch on a doily and put in my kitchen because it would be something homey and cute. And mm-hmm. I would teach them how the world works. And that's not quite how it worked out. So then what what is there? What what did you learn about their point of view that's that they look, look, when they think about the way we live, which is the which is the America we are driving towards is a cosmopolitan America. And when they look at that future for our country, uh, and, and it could be Americans, it could be Brits, it could be uh, in some ways Indians, it could be Turks, like Polish. When they see this cosmopolitan globalized world, they're like, well, we could just look, go down the street and be like, you have homeless people? And like, um, you don't know your neighbors? And you look at your phones all day? <laughs> like, uh, that is, I don't want America to become that. That's a horrible world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think they they think our values suck. And how is... And our world sucks. They don't want to live here. Right. Well, I had this thought this morning, like, what if I've been doing it all wrong with yes. my desire to live in a city? Totally. Are we doing it wrong? Yeah. But, <laughs> but I mean, I think they're vision of how the world should be is dangerous and will lead to a lot of 
true pain and danger. Uh, so I don't think they're right as to how the world, the rules for the world should be made. Mm-hmm. But they're probably right in that we should get to know our neighbors and we should like stop looking at our phones so much. And yeah. uh, we'd probably be happier if we believed in God. Like they're not, they're not, their vision of the world isn't wrong, uh, isn't wrong on like how to live mm-hmm. level, but it's wrong on a general. Do you watch The Good Place at all? Uh, a little bit. So there's this moment in The Good Place, and if it is, this is a spoiler, if people don't want spoilers, they should they turn okay, off. Okay, turn off. Go 30 seconds ahead. Yeah. So um, they find out no one's been let into heaven in like 100 years. Mm-hmm. And that's because everything you do now has a moral cost. So if you buy a computer, it's been made by like right. people who are tortured in a factory. Whereas back when you only dealt with your village, your moral decisions were much less interconnected. And, but you can't, we can't live that way. I mean, the, the problem with that system was that like most of the world starved to death, right? And now in a globalized economy, so many people have been, you know, the amount of people who are poor, like starving to death poor compared to the 1990s is like 30% less. Like mm-hmm. the world has become so much better and so much less corrupt and it's so interconnected. And then to, to say no more people can enter our country and um, you know fend for yourself and we're not going to be connected is going to... Countries that have tried that and just like have their own industry. And I'm not just talking about the far right. The far left talks about this too. you know. And we're going to make our own cell phones here they, they they get real poor real fast. Yeah, the far okay. Now I'm now we're just talking politics again. No one wants that. We got to get to fun stuff soon. Okay. But the far left. I was thinking today, like the far left freaks me out a me bit too. too. And then I was thinking, it gives you Venezuela, right? Maybe I don't know what's going on in Venezuela exactly, not, but I, I know it's not good. <laughs> they're wiping their butts with leaves. Okay, they're eating zoo animals. It's not good. Yeah, when Bernie Sanders talks about like putting a farmer on the Fed, the board of governors yeah. for the Fed, it's like there's two reasons we wouldn't eat if he did that. Right. I think that – so then I thought, well, you know, the far left and the far right, and I'm not the first person to say this at all, are very are very similar. And there's just this like anger well, among well, people. And they're maybe both that's, out maybe in France the, wearing yellow vests, right? I mean now it's more the far right. Maybe but they, it's a lesser of two evils though or I don't know. I don't know. They're coming Look together in Italy. Farm. They're coming together in Greece. Like th- they can get pretty anti-immigrant and nationalist too. Yeah. I mean, I never liked the way the, um, the far left hates NAFTA, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I never liked their, they have some America first stuff going on too. Well, so who, uh, do you like that again, pure politics, then we're moving on. Um, well, I went to who- college with Cory Booker. I'm a big fan. He's one of the most amazing want? people I've ever met in my whole life. Yeah. Even if you didn't know him. I think so. Who knows? But I really do. I mean, the way he talks about the way he can. One of the things I really don't like right now is the tenor of the conversation. Mm -hmm. It's so civil war and so angry. uh, And he really approaches it with love in a way that I find to be healing. That is almost more important than policy. It's just Mm -hmm. like that tenor to me would be really, really nice right now. Even when he talks about Trump, he talks about how great his kids are and he approaches it with love. And just, I just think any kind of healing like that would be amazing. Who do you think will get the nomination? Look, I, the one 
thing this book and the 2016 election taught me is like no predictions. Like I have right. no idea. Yeah. Like I did. No, I have no idea what's gonna happen tomorrow. Everything seems crazy. All right. Can you talk about everything? Seems crazy, right? Like I don't know what companies crazy. will be around tomorrow. Like it just feels so disrupted. Uh, which I would have thought as a teenager would be so exciting. I would have rooted for all of this. <laughs> I was wrong. Yeah, it seems like you... Um, I should love this stuff. Like, this is built for me. Like, that's what Scott Adams says to me. Like, you're a humor writer. Mm-hmm. Like, your job is to tear things down and, and make fun of things. Like, how could you not be on the Trump side? Right. Like, we make the best memes. Like, we are the best <laughs> trolls. Aren't you a troll? I'm like, yeah, I am a troll. I, I should be into this. So why did you quit your time or stop doing your time column? Because they told me to. What happened? Uh, they said, stop writing this column. Yeah. What happened? There was a new editor there who I didn't really know. I I left, I left. quit time in 2005, um, which was a hard decision. I was moving to LA. I was going to write for the LA Times. And they were really nice. And they said, they asked me to stay for an extra six months during the election. Not that I'm useful during the election. Mm-hmm. And then I left and they... Um, they were really nice. They let me teach. I taught this class at Princeton, so I wasn't even going about to the, humor, right? About humor, I wasn't even going to the. I was going to the office like three days a week. They were still mm-hmm. paying me full time, so they were they were always just great to me. But then they said, you know, we'd like to give you a contract. Have you keep writing? And I thought maybe it wasn't even a contract. We just keep writing. I thought that was just something they said. But then I kept writing from 2005 until to 2017. So almost got more of my career. Maybe I wrote from LA for them, mm-hmm. and it started to trickle off they had less money uh and they got a new editor who i didn't really know and i think he just either didn't like my columns or um or just wanted more space to put other you know more serious things in the magazine how was that for you you know it was hard identity wise more than anything so i'd really like I always felt like a little Derek jeter new york yankees kind of like (laughs) i'm doing my whole career at this place basically and so that was it was hard. And I had a humor column since college. Mm-hmm. You know, there were definitely six month periods where I couldn't get anyone to run it, but usually I found someone to run it. So that was, it was hard feeling like irrelevant. And although I was feeling more and more irrelevant because people were reading magazines less and less. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was cumulative, but it was, it was a little hard. Right. Um, you, you talk about it a little bit in the book that you changed. Um, it, it's in the in the part where you're like you've had friends that have you've been through all this stuff and whereas humor was the most important thing to you now it's yeah. not anymore. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I do remember writing that. I remember what I said, but the yeah, it's just, the times are scary right now. And um, like I said, having a humor writer write about politics is a bad sign. <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of more important to me to to not be a troll and to kind of stabilize the world uh, before we throw everything out. Cause you just see it happen to other countries and you see how, how truly damaging it is both on a personal level to what happens to, to people who get thrown out because they don't fit the nationalist picture. And you also just see the deterioration of the, of the not just the morality of the country but just the economics of the country Mm -hmm. and um and that's scary um especially if it happens to the whole world like like before when we had moments of i guess other than the dark ages usually like or even then i guess it was a small section of the world there's um it's just weird to see it happening in so many places at once this rejection of democracy and Uh, it's scary people just 
Plato kind of predicted this, but it's weird how much people really get sick of democracy and they want action fast and now, and they don't want compromise. And then you wind up with these strong men and they're always men Mm -hmm. autocracies where, um, where you can, you know, some, some percentage of the population, sometimes less than 50% can get what they want right away. Mm -hmm. And they like that, that approach because it's, it's satisfying. It's, it's, it's usually, there are simple answers to complicated problems. And that's also satisfying. But I've, it's just, I've read so many dystopian novels and I've, I've always been interested in why we grew up, like before we grew up, the future was, people presented a much rosier picture and then mm-hmm. we entered this weird sci-fi dystopia time. Yeah. People knew. Well, I think there were, they were, uh, they were writing about things that they were seeing then. But like when our parents grew up, it was like the Jetsons. Right. Like it was all, you know, yeah. and then Tomorrowland. And the era. And then, you know, and yeah. I, I don't know. So I, anytime I hear something that reminds me of anything Orwellian or mm-hmm. I like instantly like, this is not going to go well. And yeah. but there's so many people who don't seem to have that. This is elitist frame of reference, I guess. Yeah. What bothers me more, like I get that people don't necessarily have a historical frame of reference but what bothers me more is they don't have a global frame of reference like when people say you know people voted for trump because they didn't like having a black president i'm like okay but why did it happen in like england and why did it happen in turkey and why did it have they didn't have black presidents a minute ago like why did it happen in australia like there's something there's some reaction to some kind of change that's going on that had nothing to do with obama Hmm. because it's happening everywhere and do, I, I, this might be heading into the kind of question that uh, you're saying you can't answer, but do you have a sense of why it is happening everywhere? I do. I think, I, I do think it's, it's, it's something that our framers kind of understood, which there's this divide between, or Jefferson and Hamilton, there's this divide between the rural areas of our country and the mm-hmm. cities. And when globalization hit both in immigration and in trade um, and in values, particularly, and in aesthetics, even like this, the real change occurred in cities that didn't occur in rural areas. And there's two values that I think are fighting right now, um, and they're real and they're different, and they they probably both have things to learn from each other more than you would think. Um, but but just you know, to us, like we know trans people, and like gay marriage is like so that feels a million years ago mm-hmm. and then you go to a small area like miami texas where they'll tell me there's no gay people in town and there are no out gay people in town like to talk to them like they're not down with gay marriage yet mm-hmm. and there's certainly like trans doesn't even make sense like it's hard to just explain right so and then we present because we in the cities control the entertainment and the media and the, you know to some to some extent the cultural conversation it feels foisted on them and they're, they're just want to stay on the top of a mountain and yell stop. Mm -hmm. Like this change is happening much faster than you and I have clocked like real fast. Right. Like it's hard to imagine when Obama ran for president and Hillary Clinton ran against him and all those Democrats stood on the stage and not one person said they were for gay marriage. Like it's like that wasn't long ago. Yeah. Yeah. I know, but also I feel like, oh, come on. Just, I know, I know <laughs> think but what it's like for them, but it's easier for us be 
because A, we're people who move to cities. So we're right. people who inherently like change more than people who didn't move. Right. Secondly, we kind of met some trans people. So it's not so weird. Mm-hmm. Like we lived it. It's not just a, a, a theory or an argument being foisted upon us. Right. Um, we had someone kind of personally explain it to us. And that's kind of nice. Yeah. Like the, I remember meeting someone named Pigeon who was introduced as them. And I was like, what's going on? Like, <laughs> take a step back and explain it to me. And like, Pigeon helped. And then it was like, you know, they don't have a pigeon there. Mm-hmm. So, they um, need a pigeon. They need a pigeon. There's a moment in the book when you're in, and they say Miami. That's how it's pronounced, Miami, Texas. It is. And it's, uh, it's for good reason. That's the, yes. the Native American tribe that was there. Uh, I thought they just had thick accents. <laughs> I right. really did. It's spelled Miami and pronounced mm-hmm. Miami. So you're in Miami, and um, there's a woman that you're talking to. It might have been at um, the B Rafter. Uh, you really read this book. I did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, restaurant, mm-hmm. and she starts. She she says, "I don't have a problem with blacks." This is at her house. At her house. Okay, so, so I, you know the moment. People I'm were about. so Jody. Yeah, people are so nice to me. I didn't pay for one meal the whole time I was there. I wasn't alone for more than an hour. I got in like. I got in like five weeks of reporting in one week. Mm-hmm. It was, it was a great experience. Now this woman Jody, who uh, the house I was renting was a bare, it was a B and B supposedly, but no, but one, you were the only one who I was, was there. Yeah. The only one who's ever been there. So I, <laughs> so I had the whole house to myself, and she lived two houses down. And I, I met her. I met her at the one restaurant in town. Okay, and then she invited me over dinner, and I, uh, I came to her house, and we were having a great conversation. They, they were like. The coolest, like, they were the only people I met who didn't go to church, mm-hmm. even though they, they had crosses all over their house like everyone right. else, because that's just the decor down there. Uh, and she had sold vibrators for this company. <laughs> I had written a story about passion parties. Mm-hmm. Do you remember them? Uh, vaguely. Was it like Tupperware parties? But yeah. Vibrators? Yeah. I went to one of those for a Time Magazine story, and I remember, like... You just sit with a bunch of women and like put dildo vibrators against your face. I'm like, oh, that's too much. That's not enough. Like I right. was like, I learned a lot that night. Uh, and so she had sold them and she had like gone to like a house in Dallas that was, it turned out to be a bunch of gay guys who were buying They're her vibrators. best night, right? Her best night. Yeah. She was so cool. Um, and then during the conversation, she said, um, I don't have a problem with the blacks. The blacks, and then you, and then, uh, yeah. you said, "Now this is the moment you this." I'm, I'm uh, paraphrasing you. This is the moment you hate as a reporter. Yeah. And if you were more wily or whatever, you'd like change the subject or yeah. you know. Here's my question: Why do you hate that moment as a reporter? Because I think I would be like, "I this is what I suspected." It's, we should we should say what the rest of our sentence was. Well, you know what it is. It's not like um, yeah. I don't have a problem with the blacks, but they don't match my skin tone when I, when I <laughs> right. wear them as skirts. Right. Like it was black people. Um, I hate that moment because I feel, I feel conflicted. I really liked her mm-hmm. and is my responsibility towards this human being who I like and feel like I should protect mm. or is my responsibility to some generic reader who I have never met and feel like I will be lying to if I don't tell them the real story. Right. Because she was like, I don't have a problem with the blacks as long as they do what they're supposed to or something like that. Uh, we can look it up. It wasn't good. It was um, something like that. Yeah. Um, it wasn't good. And I see. So had, it was worse than that. Yeah. Do you feel like you had started to um, sand, sand away her uh, rough edges in your mind? 
No, like there weren't. That, that, was the, that was the rough edge. There weren't any rough edges till then. We were I having see. a great time. Yeah. I liked her. She was open with me. She told me personal things that I did cut from the book, mm-hmm. uh, partly for legal reasons. But she told me like deep, dark, personal things, and they made me chilly. And they were funny and cool, and like invited me to their house for dinner. Right. Like I didn't come there to, to destroy them. Mm-hmm. And then I, it's just a horrible moment where you're like, oh, that uh, right? Am I? What is my job? Yeah. What am I doing here? What, can I can I even do write this book if I'm going to lie? Mm-hmm. And how? Which is worse morally? I just felt like it was a it's an awful it's moral position to be in. And I've been in it a bunch of times and it sucks. I remember I was interviewing like Jim Carrey, who I I love Jim Carrey, and I got there and like Jim Carrey had recently, uh, I think he was dating Jenny McCarthy, and he was telling me he had found this. He was going to write a self-help book because he found these golden shoes. These, and then and he wants to share them with everyone. And it was just like, I met Jim Carrey, the self-help nut. <laughs> and I was like, Jesus Christ, just talk with your butt. Like, <laughs> but I, but I sat there like a, like a, like what people hate about journalists is mm-hmm. I was like, I was acted really fascinated. I acted like I agreed with him. Right. Like I always like when I watch movies like Blood Diamonds or I don't know why that one came to mind. I haven't seen this one. It's always like some journalist acting. It's a print journalist acting like a TV journalist. Mm. And TV journalists are, um, they're performative. Right. Right? They're arguing. They're presenting their point of view to get mm-hmm. someone else to say something because you want to see. They're, pro- they're provoking. They're provoking because you want to see that action right. on TV. But like an, a print journalist, your objective is to get information. Mm-hmm. So if someone, if someone, you know, if I'm interviewing Hitler and he tells me how awful the Jews are, I'm like, yeah, I know. Right, I know some of them. Tell me more. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of disingenuous because you're going along with what everyone. I mean, not everyone's like this. This is how I am. Right, I'm very disingenuous. And I'm going along with what anyone says, and that, and I did that to Jim Carrey, and he was furious. Right, um, when it came out, when it came out, and I get that. Like, but I didn't know. I got home, and I'm like, God damn it! Like, I don't know how to present this in any other way than he is a kook. Mm-hmm. What was that for? That was for time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have, do you always? ultimately uh, side with the reader give them the info yeah I mean I've had I've had editors stop me I could tell a, a good story please do okay um, <laughs> do you remember this movie The Judge which had Robert Downey Jr. I think he I think he even produced it and um, well, this is an important part of the story of this guy and Robert Duvall mm-hmm and they were like a father-son story. So I went over to Robert Downey Jr.'s offices in Venice. And his like chef made me dinner. It's this amazing building. And it was me and Downey and Robert Duvall. Mm-hmm. Wow. And we're sitting around. And Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> possibly the most charming person I've ever met in my whole life. Yeah. Like if he wasn't famous and you just met him, you'd be like, I need to know all about that guy. <laughs> like, he's amazing. He... Like you would want to put him in the most awkward situation and have him navigate it, which is what happened. Mm-hmm. Which is Robert Duvall, although an, he was an amazing actor in that movie, and I think he was directing a movie at that time, like clearly still capable, to me seemed to have s- somewhat severe dementia of some kind. Mm-hmm. And to the point at which he didn't, there were often parts where he did not remember that I was a reporter and thought I worked on the film. Okay. So at some point, like, Robert Downey Jr. got him to wear a hat for like Instagram that said the judge. 
And then he thanked me for the hats and asked mm. me if I'd give it, if he'd give it back to me. So, but he said incredibly inappropriate things that Downey Jr. kept. Downey Jr. What do you call him? Robert Downey. RDJ. RDJ. Is that right? I think I feel like I've heard people say that, but I don't really know. RDJ kept steering him away from these <laughs> horrible things he was saying. Like horrible about who? Oh, like I, I wish I could remember all of them. There's a long rant about how Mormons like to take it up the ass because it doesn't <laughs> count against their virginity. Oh my god! Okay, but, but that was just like one of the. the I many, wish I could remember yeah. all of them. They got crazier and crazier, mm. right? And they were all like vaguely sexual. Uh, they were all on somewhere in the continuum of misogyny and sex and racism. Okay. Oh, right. Right. Um, I don't know why that Mormon one stuck out because that was he got really into it. Like uh-huh. it was a real thing he knew about. Yeah. Um. And so I, I wrote it, and my editor was like, we can't, we can't run that. I was like, kind of have to. It's what happened. They're mm-hmm. like, we just can't. Because he had dementia? I think time was just being wimpy because they didn't want to print racist and right. sexist things, right. regardless of who said them. Mm-hmm. That always pissed me off about, about publications. Right. If something happened, I feel like you run it. Yeah. I even got in an argument with my editor in this book because someone said the N-word, at least one person, and mm-hmm. I wrote it. And then they put it, put dashes in it, or or, or they didn't even want to run the word. They want to mm. just cut it. I'm like, no, this it's is kind a of an fact. important part. This is an yeah. important thing that happens. Yeah. Um. So yeah, there's, some people get really queasy about things. It's interesting. Just My, being that, just being the, you know, the deliverer of the news makes them queasy. Right. Did you have ha, have you how did you handle this experience or how do you handle it? Because this used to happen to me back uh, in my magazine writing days a lot. Um. I would do an interview and then sometime either after I'd already turned it in or before I turned it in, uh, the subject would contact me and ask me, please don't print all this stuff, you know, X, Y, Z that I said. It happened to you a lot? Maybe not. A, maybe it didn't happen to me a lot, but it happened. happened a couple times. It happened to me enough that it they stand out because I always felt yeah. very torn about it. Yeah. And my editor... I, you know what? I can think of twice that it happened. Okay. Um, and both times, and this is your different publications now, both times my editor, they're the editor in chief, was like, no. Like, you, yes. your right. microphone was, or you, they knew they were talking. Yep. I'm, I'm confusing my podcast and my, uh, my back then uh, tape recorder days. Like, they knew yep. you were a reporter. This was on the record. They can't just take it away. And I always felt bad because I felt this the thing you're talking about. I yeah, felt an it's allegiance a human being to you've them. Shared a meal with or right out with, yeah, right. And so both times the stuff ended up running. Mm. Um, and then when I started podcasting, occasionally I would have someone on the show, and then they would ask if if I can take something out. And I had this at the beginning very hard line like magazine journalist mm. uh, mindset that I had sort of adopted from the editors of like you were talking into a microphone like you knew but then you'll take out the part where i had sex with stan lee i think that was i, I think he yeah. wouldn't want that out there you think he okay just because we'll of the may december <laughs> of it <laughs> right yeah right um okay but you knew i did know you knew but stan's dead now yeah. and i don't think his kids want out of it. respect i understand yeah. uh but now i pretty much if if someone wants it out, I just take it out. As as a podcaster, I do that because relationships are so important. And sometimes I'll try to talk them. I mean, oftentimes it's not something that to me is that big a deal. I would take that stuff out when someone yeah someone did call me. Often it was something that was not that great for the story, and I was 
I was usually just happy to take that out. Right. Sometimes it was something that was news and I usually wimped out and I would say, and this is usually true. It wasn't a lie. I would say, I've already sent it to my editor. It's up to them and they won't let me take it out. You can talk to them. Right. Uh, But often it was something that was like relevant to them and didn't matter the story. Sometimes it was something I wasn't even going to use. That's the best. That's the best. Of course. (laughs) But then you're, but that's the worst because then you're tempted to use it. You're like, maybe this was good. Right. Yeah. But it's usually not. It's usually just that like their friend would be upset if they heard it. It's always what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Like Stan. Right. Yeah. Stan's family. Gentle, gentle lover. So what was your experience at Time Out in New York like? Oh, it's fantastic. I was there when it launched. So it was 1995. I had spent two years fact-checking. I was about to give up on magazine writing, which I, th- I had cool internships at college. I'd mm-hmm. been at like Newsweek. I worked at the Paradise Post, which is that town that burned down in um, California. Mm. And I thought like I would easily get a writing job. I had like all these, I'd written a column for three years at college that people liked. And, um, and I couldn't get a job. I was fact-checking for two years. I was going to give up. Where were you fact-checking? Uh, first year I worked for Martha Stewart. Part of it was fact-checking. Part of it was writing for a TV show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then TV Guide mm-hmm. for six months. Then Reader's Digest Books for six months. It was miserable. And I mean, it was only two years. If you, But I didn't know. It seemed right. like the rest of my life. So yeah. it seemed miserable. And then I... Um, yeah, I had a friend from Martha Stewart who was a production guy. Mark Einsley and he got hired at Time Out and he's like, I was like, I need to work there because I've been a fan of the British mm-hmm. Time Out. And he said, um, apply to be the sports writer, a sports editor. I was like, I don't know anything about sports. <laughs> and he's like, look, you want to be the theater editor, right? He's like, there's 20 people who want to be the theater editor. This is New York City. Like, no one wants to be the sports editor. Oh, that's so smart. Or I, I was like, I'm going to do TV or theater. Those are the things I know. <laughs> and he's like, no, do the sports. I'm like, I'll never get through the interviews. Like, the editor is Cindy Stivers, who is a premiere, and the publisher is a woman from South Africa. <laughs> so he's like, just bullshit it. Mm-hmm. So I got there and I like just talked about the 1978 Yankees, which I knew a ton about because I was seven years old and loved them. And that was good enough. So I became the sports editor at Time of New York. And it was launching, and I thought it would last three months. I thought mm. it was just going to fail. But it was like three months of clips I could get. Mm-hmm. So I was psyched. And there was all this, these young people who were, we were so hungry. And I, hadn't, I didn't have anyone to go home to. I mean, like, I wound up dating someone at, the, at work. Mm-hmm. And we, um, uh, I just was there all the time. I remember I took a vacation with her. And I think, I don't feel this anymore, but I remember feeling like, so on fire during this vacation that I wanted to be writing and working and like <laughs> that I was just, it wasn't stress. I was just miserable. I was like, mm-hmm. I couldn't sit still. Yeah. Like I just wanted to stay up all night and because the stuff I wrote would get in the magazine, mm-hmm. you know, and that was everything. So, yeah. and then because I was writing, I was a sports editor, which no one read or cared about. It gave me all this time to write for everyone else's section. Mm-hmm. So I just wrote for everybody as much as I could. Um, yeah, and then I got this offer in this way from Time Magazine to write there. And I remember being very conflicted. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to go to this magazine full of old people. <laughs> and I'm going to have to write in their old people style. And I'll get one story in every like year. And like, I just, maybe I'll just stay here and work for you know food, like free apps <laughs> right. at parties, which is what we were working for, mm-hmm. basically. I was like, but it's just, I, it was hard to give up. In fact, I didn't. I kept writing my column oh, yeah. for Time Out New York when I was at Time under this like very 
the world was pre-internet. The world was a little. I mean, the internet was around, but people weren't really. It was dial-up. Um, I had a very. I had a lot of trouble figuring out how big the world was, mm-hmm. and so I had this kind of assumption that Time Out New York was for young people, and the editors at Time were old, so they would never encounter it and know about this column I wrote. <laughs> I mean, I really just thought that. Right. I feel like the main thing New York publications do is keep tabs on each other. Yeah, but I don't think I got that. Right. There was a lot of things I just didn't get about how the world worked. I remember being like first or second grade and watching TV and like the local, one of the local channels was WPIX in Mm -hmm. New York. And I had a crush on this girl named Busy. His real name is Elizabeth Sklars. We're still friends. And she, um, there was this thing after school where they would put an Atari video game on channel 11 mm-hmm. and you, and they would, you'd apply for this and apply is not the right word. <laughs> and they'd call your house and you would play the video game by yelling picks, which is WPIX <laughs> and you'd shoot your space, space and uh. or whatever. And she got the basketball game and it was like Elizabeth Sklar's from Edison, New Jersey. And she went pick, 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 pick. And she really blew it because <laughs> she just yelled the word right. constantly. It didn't score any points. Mm-hmm. But I remember like thinking, and it clearly has the voice of like a six-year-old. And I'm like, I wonder if that's the same Elizabeth Sklar's from Edison, New Jersey. Like, I just remember having no idea. Like, maybe there's just one or maybe there's like 200. I don't know <laughs> right. how many there are. Right. And I remember going to school next to me like, was that you? She's like, yeah, of course. Like, but I still, I still feel like confused about how big the world mm-hmm. is. I feel like there, this is not the same except for things that you just don't understand how they work. Um, when I would be choosing courses to take, I would see like, oh, British literature. Not realizing that that is uh, literature from the UK or from England. Or like, I, What were you hoping it would be? Like I don't think mechanical I understood. engineering? <laughs> <laughs> no, I knew it was literature. But I don't think I understood that American lit, British lit, I didn't understand that it was location specific. I don't know how I didn't. You thought it would be it was just, like a huge blind just spot. Just books with an accent, or books about British people, or like I don't. I think books where people drink tea. What were you hoping from this? No, I wasn't disappointed by what I got. Okay. I just think I didn't quite understand American literature. I think I thought they were kind of this, like American literature, British literature. It's just all English. Right. Just, I didn't. I didn't understand. You didn't make that distinction yet. You're, cause, cause, right, but, but I mean, I'm fair, talking almost about. I'm talking about college. But I think that's fair because. An American, there's not that much American literature. So you get occasionally like a, a Jack London novel or something thrown in with your Jane Eyre. Like yeah. it all feels the same to you. Right. Because a lot of what you're reading is British literature and occasionally throw in an American one. Yeah, I think I thought equal. it was just an extension right, of it, the kind of exposure yes. to literature that I've had right, in school up till now. It was yes. all mixed up. But if you were British, you wouldn't feel that way. Right. Because they don't read any American books. And they just occasionally they'll be like, this is what they read over there. Here's... It is usually Jack London, mm-hmm. but um, <laughs> for some reason. But they don't read Twain. They don't read you know yeah. Henry James. They don't read us. So, so yeah, for them, there's a real distinction. For us, we had so little that it right. was just like all one big. We hoped we were part of the big thing. Well, thank you for making me feel better about yeah. my my dumb blind spot. Um, okay, in the acknowledgments, you mentioned that you spent a lot of time at Goop, but you cut out I did. that stuff. I so did. what happened there? I wrote a very long. So back before I. Started to figure out how to tie this together as an as a book, as a story, which I still didn't quite accomplish. But no, I think you did. That's very kind. But it was more of a series of magazine articles about elites, 
And this is before it became a little more political than it became. It was just kind of learning about elites. And I thought, who's the most, I would ask people, who's the most elite person in the world? Who would you, who would you pick? Oh God. I don't know that I would pick Gwyneth Baltrow, but I think she is. But sure, yeah. she, that works for that, that. that. That name came up a lot. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'll interview Gwyneth Paltrow. And I, was, I got a lot of... When you tell people you're doing a book about indefensive elitism and you'd like to interview them, you get a lot of no right I away. Imagine. Yeah. So I got a no from her. I got a no from that woman that makes those um, those moon juice pow- moon powders. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, I only know what that is because do you watch you on Netflix? No, but I know what it is. Uh, they mention moon juice. Yeah. So moon juice isn't right. But remember those oh. powders like sex dust and like whatever. It's like Gwyneth Paltrow. Okay. Kind of. But anyway, so she said no. But then I went, this woman, Elise, who's the yes, editor. Who I know. She's the best. Because she was at Time Out New York when I was at Time That's Out correct. New York. That's correct. Yes. Did you like her? Yes. I think she's amazing. Yeah. So she's the editor of Goop. She runs all their mm. their editorial stuff and she knew my stuff and liked me and everyone on her team like all the publicity people were like no we can't be in a book like first of all I can't have that title if you're gonna have us uh and i was like okay i'm flexible on the title and uh because i really wanted to get to gwyneth and so i spent a lot of time over there i probably was in those offices three or four times mm-hmm. and then i went to the goop uh event in new york in goop health mm. for you know for the day and then I ran to Gwyneth there. Um, yeah, so I had, I had a real long chapter on Goop that I cut. Why'd you cut it? Because it, the book was no longer, it was really off topic. Mm. It, that, that was about, it was now right. it was about populism. Yeah. And she's not, that's not what she represents. I mean, it's, I mean the tie-in is that some of the Goop beliefs are um, anti-expert, anti-fact, anti-medical. right. So there was a tie-in, but it was pretty loose because a lot of the stuff I experienced was um, just goopiness. Uh, <laughs> right. It was, it was more about making fun of rich women than it was anything. And, and, that, and it could have sort of tie-in, but the way I wrote it, it got off track real fast, mm-hmm. which was too bad because it was kind of the, one of the funnier chapters. Are, can you use it for anything, do you think? Yeah, I, you know, I tried to give it to some magazine and they weren't into it. Um. Uh, yeah, maybe it wasn't as good as I thought. Maybe it was, and they're not as good as you think. That could be. Could you explain the loop and why you call it the loop? Yeah, I don't know why. So when I was um, got out of college, moved to New York. It was before I got out of college. I was interning at Newsweek, and I remember my whole life. I think my goal wasn't to be rich. It, it was to have a sense there was a bigger world of more people doing interesting things. And I didn't, I didn't really know how to access it, but I was a real pretentious kid in that, like I would read things that weren't like age appropriate. And I would want to eat at like restaurants that were like adult restaurants. Mm-hmm. And I'd want to go see Broadway shows and, um, and just, there's like, I was afraid of New York City. My parents were from there. Um, and I lived in New Jersey. But I was interested in this this world that seemed more sophisticated and interesting. And um, whether that was seeing like weird old movies, that kind of thing. So I interned at Newsweek while I was in college. And 
and they had so much access, like especially it was 1991, I would think. And they had so much or 92, they had so much access that it would be like, someone would just give me a, you know, a movie premiere pass. And Mm -hmm. someone would give me like, I went to like, it's just people weren't using this stuff. Like, you know, they were getting all these invites. So they'd give me like, I'd go to Roddy McDowell's book party (laughs) at the limelight full of drag queens. And that went to the democratic convention. And I was like, Oh, like I, there's a world like a hidden world where people are going to all these parties and they know each other. And I'd always like, it always confused me if I was watching Letterman or something. And it was like, this isn't a true example, but like, why does Mr. Rogers already know Tom, already Mm -hmm. know um, like Keith Richards? Right. How do those worlds intersect? And the answer is like Letterman's green room. Mm -hmm. Right. But there's this world of these people and I wanted, I wanted to see it and I wanted access to it. And then when I moved to New York, uh, I was fact checking and I did not have access to it. And I didn't know how to get in there. And I called it the loop. It seemed impenetrable. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm living in Manhattan. <laughs> I'm walking by these parties. Like I see them, they're roped off, but like I have no idea how to get into it. Mm-hmm. And then, and then Time Out New York was a real, I mean, that's, that's what they pay you in access. <laughs> well, it's funny. I had pitched a sitcom like a long time ago called Virtual Rich. Mm-hmm. And the idea was a bunch of uh, young people because it was awesome, right? Like, I had some friends who were working in like investment banking or something mm-hmm. and they had no access to the loop, but tons of money and their lives were, oh, they had nicer apartments, but who mm-hmm. cared? Right. Like we were going to, we were going to restaurant openings and like, yeah, my life was like full of free past hors d'oeuvres. So the loop is this, this velvet rope world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you feel like you are still motivated by wanting to be part of that world? Yeah. Yes, and there's this great quote that I use from C.S. Lewis about how he called it the ring. Uh, and he said that trying to be in the inner ring would destroy your life. Mm-hmm. And you'd, you'd give up your morals and you'd, um, you'd ruin everything that you believed in trying to get into the ring. But like, I still feel like I'd rather be in the ring than write those like eight crappy Narnia books <laughs> after The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, like Prince Caspian or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, so... I. I felt like I wanted to be a humor columnist for like a small newspaper and I got to do it for time magazine. And I find that that desperate hunger I had is gone. Mm -hmm. Like I got to experience it and see what it was like, but I still, I still like going to like, there was a whole chapter and there's still as most of it. I had to cut some of it on elite conferences. Mm -hmm. So these kind of Davosy kind of groups. And I kind of, I'm a member of a couple of those, not Davos. And I kind of love them. Like I just, I just find seeing those people and how they network and how they interact and how they gather information to be really interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I actually had made a note. I wanted to ask you about your love of conferences because I don't love. I've don't. I've never been to the ones you're talking about. Yeah, but the ones I have been. Like, where have you been that you didn't like? I don't want to say I didn't like them, but okay. I mean I've been on panels at various conferences. Oh no, no, no! Those suck. Okay, you don't want to be on a panel. Right. Oh God. Well, yeah. so, but might be one of these like secret organizations. Yeah, I've never been to some. Yeah, those yet. are the good ones. So that's so. So They're it's a totally different thing. Yeah, yeah, it's a totally different vibe then. Well, I don't like the ones where you watch people on a stage. Mm-hmm. I like the ones where you just get in a room with people and you all talk. Yeah, never. I've never been. I've no never been had access to. As anything soon like as that. someone's talking on a right. stage, I don't like those. Okay. Like no, the, I've just yeah. been at things where like. 
South by Southwest way back in the day had yeah. like a bunch of panels and I'd always and those be like, parties well, can be good like a Sundance yes. or like those that can be good that was fun but the actual like the panel of it all or yeah. like a TED or you know right. um, the parts where you're sitting and listening to people um, are dumb mm-hmm. yeah what you want is the ones where you just meet in conference small conference rooms with like 20 people and there's usually like um, you know 12 different rooms where you can go to whichever one you want and whatever they're talking about and you just sit in a room and talk to people and and there's a topic for the talk, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how do you get to be part of these? I don't know. I'd like to get be part part of more of them. You right. just uh, you got to know someone invites you, right? Mm. Yeah, there's not enough secret society. Like reboot action. the Jewish one. Have you done that? No, I oh, didn't even a, know about it till your oh book. Oh God, they meet in Utah at the Stein Erickson Lodge in the summer. You get to go for two years in a row, mm. and it's just three days where you reinvent Judaism. But it's the same idea that you right. like. So. A lot of them are run, some of them are run with this concept of no meetings are planned in advance. You just get there and you suggest whatever meetings you want. And if people show up, great. And if they don't, they don't. And if three people show up, great. If 30 people show up, great. Right. And that's a pretty good system. Wait, you went to Aspen Ideas, right? Because I had... No, I've been to Aspen because my old boss ran it. But I... Did I go... I think I wasn't like at the Ideas Festival. No. Oh, okay. But that's a good one too. Yeah. Although there's, there's people talking on stage at that one, but that's a pretty good one because most of the action is not going to see people talk on stage. It's mm-hmm. just hanging out. Right. Something I was just going to ask you and I just lost it. Was it about what? Aspen? No. It, oh, no. I know what it was. It's a very important question. Do you pay to go to these conferences? So some, yeah, some pay for you. Like Reboot's free. Yeah. Uh, it's paid for by like Steven Spielberg. And, I like um, that idea. I like that. Uh, some of them you do, and most people are probably expensing it. Got it. Got it. All right, well. And if- then there's a bunch of people there who aren't paying because they are like a priest or, you know, a run a charity or, you mm-hmm. know, so those people are probably not paying. Well, if anyone listening is in charge of the guest list at some kind of secret yeah. conference, yeah, consider me. Yeah. Consider me. I think you'd be great. Thank you. And the best thing is you wear a name tag. Yeah. You don't have to remember names. No. No. Yeah. Because I can't remember names. Uh, you don't believe in free will? No. Say more. Really? Yeah. Because this is like something that drives my wife crazy. Like there's a couple topics I'm not really allowed to talk about at home. Oh my God. What up? I have some with my husband. What, what are else? yours? <sighs> Bernie. You love Bernie. Nope, my husband does. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I wrote a cover on Bernie for the for Business Week I last cycle. You do. You do need to read it. Yeah. I need to read it. It's one of the few things I've written I would say you do need to read. He's I'll I'll read anything you write. Oh. Um He's not it's like it's not that he's not allowed to talk about it, mm-hmm. but it's like there's sort of a um time's going to run out quick when he's talking about politics in general and okay. he knows that. Okay. Uh, well, that's different than... Then it's off the are table. Are there things you can't talk about or it's just he can't talk about things? And men are the problem, really. <laughs> I mean, really, just, right? Men are, go on and on about the Civil War. It's just him. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else besides fair. Bernie? Is there something else? No, I think that's pretty much it. I'm trying just to think Bernie. of any... Yeah, but it's Bernie and it's politics in general. Got it. It's like, if he starts talking about politics, but I have a limited attention span. L- let me defend you here. Um, is he always talking about like presidential politics? Or is it ever like, can you believe what happened in like the mayoral election in Istanbul? Because it's always the same six people he's like talking it's, about. It's yeah, I mean it's anger at ah, there we go. It's anger. Yeah, 
and I just it stresses me out. And what if if he had been like a crazy like New York Islanders fan and was screaming about that? That would be just as bad. Yes. Yeah. It's the anger part. I get yes. that. Yeah. And people really tend to funnel it either through politics or sports. Right. Right. Yeah. Yes. There was one night, and I still feel really bad about this, where Lawrence O'Donnell or Chris Matthews was talking, and they said something, and he like started was he yelled something back mm-hmm. at the TV. And I was like, can I at least hear what he's saying? But the way I said it was so harsh. Yes. I felt really I bad. I felt it there. Yeah. 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 I felt really bad about that. I want to um, hear what Mike and the Mad Dog have to say <laughs> before you jump in. Yeah. But he was defending Bernie. Sure. Because it was some, they said something that I didn't even react to about Bernie. Anyway, so what are the topics that you're not allowed to talk about? I shouldn't say that, but I tend to bore people and my wife is around the most. Mm-hmm. When I talk about free will uh, and ants. <laughs> it just it just correlated okay. to free will. Oh, yeah. I think you said there's something about ants in the book. Ants, oh, yeah. Jesus, I'm sorry. Versus, there's only five thousand tigers and rhino and rhinos. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Well, you said it. There's so. a lot of ants. Yeah. I do know a little bit about. So ants. wait, do you? So you think free will is just ants an illusion. work together? That's why. That's why it came up, right? Right. Oh yes. Talking about globalism. And, yes. And yes. And also, I think you were talking about yeah. altruistic groups versus selfish groups. Yeah. Um. So wait. What? Same. What do you think about free will, though? I just don't think we have it. So what's people don't like to hear that? No, I'm okay with it's it. Funny. It I'm just trying to night. understand yeah. it. Um. I don't. Um. I think we like what's in charge of our decision making process then, or our brains. Okay. And our experiences. And um, and our DNA, like all, everything that you think, it's just that um, you can't control how you react. So it's like preordained in a sense, not by God, but by like... I mean, the world is so complicated that there's a little bit of me that thinks there's randomness to the universe. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how preordained everything is. I mean, they're, you know, even uh, electrons act spooky. Uh, so... Maybe there's a lot of randomness, but I don't think you have, I think if I, if I did something to you right now, you have no choice about how you'd react to it. Even if I think I do, like that's just an illusion. Interesting. Yeah. There's will. I mean, you can want things and Mm -hmm. get them, but you don't have a choice about it. Do you ever have this experience? Um, I will go back and listen to an, Oh, uh, I didn't have a choice about interrupting you. <laughs> <laughs> I will go back and listen to an old interview with someone, like if they're coming back on the podcast mm-hmm. again, and they'll say something, and then I'll think of a joke in my head, and then I'll hear myself on the yeah. Joke, say Isn't it, that great? Like, oh my! That might just be memory, but that I but, love that. No, I don't think it's memory though. You think I think it's just the same way your brain works. Yes, yeah. I think it's like you oh my god, right. I am a I'm a robot. That's yes. how I feel. Like the same stimulus yes. creates the exact same, same response. Thing. Yeah, that. That more than anything freaky, isn't it? makes me feel like I am just a, a But don't you feel reaction. even in arguments, you're like, I keep getting in the fight with this guy. I'm not going to do it next time. I'm like, and then, God damn it, I did it again. Yes. Um, so, yes. yeah. And I think I'm interested in the fact that more and more people at the leading edge of all kinds of different disciplines do not believe, do not believe in free will anymore. And I think it has it's having a great effect on lots of the way we're living and no one's really pinpointed that and to me i mean lots of people have written books about not believing free will sam harris everyone mm-hmm. but i think the way it's changing all kinds of things like 
therapy, right? Mm-hmm. Like you used to sit and talk about like your mom endlessly or your dad or whatever it was. Now they just give you like CBT therapy. They're like, I don't care why you think this way. Here's some actions you can take to change the way you, you behave, right, right? Right. Like it's all gotten real robot-like. Mm-hmm. Like the, even, so I, I think it's going to affect our justice system. I think as more, fewer and fewer people believe in free will, I think it's going to change a lot of how we act and the, our systems. Uh, but a little, there's part of me that, that wants to, that feels like, but a little bit isn't the semantics though. You really have to believe in a soul. You have to believe in something non-physical to believe in free will. Cause otherwise there's just a brain and stimulus mm-hmm. that can't have a choice. That choice has to be coming from somewhere magic, what I would call magical, right? A soul or God or something. Otherwise it doesn't, there's no logic to your system. So then what do you make? And I'm not, I'm not arguing against you. I'm just trying to understand. I feel like I'm too dumb to understand this. No, um, it's, but- it's, it's, it's so anti-intuitive. We all feel like we're making choices constantly. Right. So it's, re- it's incredibly hard to wrap your head around. So then let's say you Because everything to- we feel is that we're making choices. Right. right. Like I feel like I interrupted you with a choice. Um, right. It's hard to even think about the fact that it wasn't a choice. So then what do you make of like, I used to always react to this kind of situation a certain way and now I react to it a different way. I think you learned. That's right, but it wasn't a choice. It was still the product of correct. my yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't disagree with that. Yeah, I just don't. But it, it changes the way you operate in the world once you wrap your head around that. Like, like I, how? Like simple things. Because I still do if the someone, therapy where I talk about my family, but I don't know that it's helping. I don't know if it's helping. <laughs> right. So I, I tend to do less of that. I tend to do less of like getting angry at people when they cut me off. Mm. Um. You know, I don't, I don't ascribe motives okay. as much as I used to. And I, I, I'm not angry at Trump. Like, it, it helps. I was never that angry, but it really helps reduce anger. It, that would actually help me to not... I mean, I think that's one of the four agreements, a book I've never read, but uh, I see people tweet about, to not take things personally. So you, right. don't, so you don't get angry when someone cuts you off because they couldn't help it? Correct. But all, that... I also think I've cut people off. So that helps me too. Because right. I'm not a great driver. So right. I uh but yeah, I also feel like they didn't they didn't choose to do that. And then you can go further and imagine the stimulus that would have caused it. Mm-hmm. Like they were late, they were whatever it was that right. caused them to do it. Right. So it gives you more empathy. It's a weird form of empathy because you don't it does give you empathy. It gives me empathy in my relationship too, in that if I see my wife doing something, I'm like, Oh, she's not choosing to do that. Like that's, she's not doing that to hurt me. She's not Mm -hmm. doing that. And and often I can see she doesn't want to be doing it. Right. And it's happening anyway. And I I really don't blame her. And then, and then you really start leaning into habits because you're like, Oh, I can't choose to go to the gym. Like that's just not going to happen. Like I know that. So I have to create a habit where I go to the gym. Because hmm. I don't have a choice. Right. And is that what you did? Yeah. And how do you create a habit? Oh, you just do it a bunch of times. Like, you, like every time I wake up, I'm going to go brush my right. teeth, wash my face, go to the gym. Like, right. I'm not going to, there's no more choices involved. It's mm. just those things happen. Yeah. Just like brushing your teeth when you teach right. your kid to brush your teeth. Like, I, I never have to touch, teach my 10 year old to brush his teeth again. Like the rest of his life, he's going to brush his mm-hmm. teeth. But if you don't teach them early, it's not a habit. Right. And they have to choose every time. Like, right. when should I brush my teeth? Like uh, after breakfast, maybe later, like uh, it's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. 
That yes, that makes sense. Like a lot of uh, there is a lot of well, you actually mention in your book the like spending time figuring out when to shower. Oh, it's a mess. Ever since yeah. I, since I work when at I, home, it's a yes, mess. Exactly. Disaster. Like when I'm following around Eric Garcetti, whose life is like so well planned out and so efficient. Right. Uh, he's the mayor of L.A. and uh, I'm just, and I, I use him as an example of someone, a member of the elite, like kind of the anti-Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and he showers every day. Right. As soon as he wakes up. Right. That's an effective, efficient thing to do. Yeah, just shower. Like, yeah. Don't think about like I've actually been thinking about the showering because it is a real problem. Because mm-hmm. uh, I didn't shower that long before I showed up here. And like, yeah, because th- today I'm out of the habit for various reasons of the gym. So I was like, I'm going to go to the gym after I do this. So I'm not going to shower before that. And I, you wind up doing all these mental gymnastics right. in your that's head. Always, that's always the reason that I – because I actually feel the best when I shower right after I get up. Yeah, However, I always put it off because what if I'm going to work out? Yeah. And, and by know. the way – Let's say you do work out. You just shower again. Like, it's not a big deal. Like, um, you might dry yeah. out your hair, though. Yeah, I didn't think Maybe about it. Your hair is lustrous. Oh, thank you. That's what your new best friend says. I felt it. Right? Joel Stein, it was delightful having you back on. Thank you. It was good catching up. Is it, it we're, was. we're done with the catching up part? We're done with it. We're moving on to the interview? <laughs> yes. So okay. tell me. Good. I'm okay. Ready. Everyone go out and get in defense of elitism why I'm better than you. I lost the ability to read in that moment. I'm going to try that again. It's not a choice, right? It wasn't. It no. didn't. It felt like it wasn't a choice. No. In defense of elitism, why I'm better than you and you are better than someone who didn't buy this book by Joel Stein. I'll put a link to it in the episode summary on my website. Uh, January 26th, please come see Allison Rose's new best friend is live. Is this your birthday thing with the band or is that past? It, it's not a birthday. It's your but birthday. No. You don't have a birthday. Not January. I, my birthday's in May. Oh. But... Yes, you remembered most of it. Okay. Uh, yes. Sketchfest. Right. <laughs> I'm doing Alice Rose's new best friend live on January 26th. My old band, the Angoras, is reuniting. Is it their birthday? It's the audience. It's like the audience's okay, birthday. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Kirsten Vangsness from Criminal Minds is going to be my guest. There might even be another guest. It's just going to be a really fun time. Wow. SFSketchfest.com. The day before, January 25th, Greg Fitzsimmons and I are doing Childish Live, and our guest is comedian Jessica Curson. We might have another guest, too. Please come out. Make a weekend of it. SFSketchfest.com. Uh, follow where, me. Where is that? It's in San Francisco. Right, I'm just helping you. No, that, that is good, because yeah. they might be like, Santa Fe, where is that? Lots of It's SS. San Francisco. Yeah. That's right. Make a weekend of it. Lots of Allison Rosen as your new best friend fans are going to be there. Um, meet up with them. I feel like they've got a whole fun weekend of stuff planned. Also, I'm on Patreon, patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. Uh, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Rosen. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe and leave uh, a five-star comment on Apple Podcasts. That helps out the show. I did my plugs before I let you plug. That was You plugged my book. I'm, that's, that's all I'm plugging. Is there any, any, I know, but do you want to throw out anything else? No, just, sh- just a book. Just a book, yeah. What about um, social media? No, I don't care. I know. You actually, in your bio on Instagram, you say you'd think this is something that's made for someone like me, but it's not. Yeah, it's not made for me. I, I can't keep up on that. Yeah. I'm old. We're all old. I'm older. You are. Yeah. Um, Thank you again for being on the show. Thank you for having me here for seven hours. This is great. <laughs> Listeners, thank it you. It literally got dark. I know. Does that happen Who, all the time? No, it it only happens if I do a show at four. Oh, but it, it consistently, regardless of the season. Uh, it depends on. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you for being on, listeners. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the hour?
Dallas and Rose and Show. We had a good time. 